APRA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Before we start, a brief warning that in this episode we discuss errors in healthcare settings and the guests make references to resulting disability, serious illness and death. This is perhaps not an episode for younger listeners or those who find these topics distressing. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles. Patient safety is a priority for health practitioners, for regulators, and of course, for patients and their families. In this episode, we're talking about openness between health practitioners and their patients, even when things go wrong. In fact, especially when things go wrong and how that openness can increase patient safety. And joining me today is an international cast. Sue Sheridan is a founding member of Patients for Patient Safety US. Peter Walsh is Chief Executive of Action Against Medical Accidents in the UK. And closer to home, Michael Gordon is a member of the Expert Working Group for Statutory Duty of Candor in Victoria, also Chair of the Alfred Hospital in Victoria, and the former chair of APRA's Agency Management Committee. Welcome, Sue, Peter, and Michael. Thank you for being here and negotiating three different time zones. So let's make a start. I'm wondering if each of you could give a bit of background and your link to patient safety. Sue, let's start with you. My name is Sue Sheridan, and I am founding member of a patient safety group in the United States called Patients for Patient Safety. It's a patient-organized and patient-led organization to create, to re-energize actually patient safety in the United States and to help implement the WHO's Global Patient Safety Action Plan. What brought me into patient safety was um, I was an international trade finance banker. And during that time, I had a son, Cal, who suffered brain damage on the fifth day of life, uh, completely preventable from his newborn jaundice. Um, He slipped through several cracks, never got tested for his bilirubin. There were documentation errors, competency problems, And today he's 26, has uh, significant cerebral palsy, um, hearing impaired, speech impaired, uh, really a funny and smart guy, but has challenges that he should never have had because of, you know, errors in our healthcare system. And then four years later, my late husband, Pat, um, had um, a a medical error as well when his malignant pathology of a tumor that was in his neck um, got lost in the healthcare system. It was believed it was benign. It was communicated to us that it was benign. And um, there was a period of six months where it was never treated. During that time, it metastasized throughout his spinal column. And, um, and we learned about the error in a, in a roundabout way. There was no disclosure for my son, no disclosure for my husband. My husband uh, died when he was 45 with a six-year-old son and four-year-old daughter. So that's what brought me into patient safety. You can say it's seared in my soul to make sure we do what's right you know, for patients and family members. Thank you, Sue. Uh, Peter. Well, my name's Peter Walsh. I'm chief executive of a charity in the UK called Action Against Medical Accidents. We sometimes go by the acronym AVMA for short. Um, Basically, we're a patient's charity that works for better patient safety and justice when things go wrong. The charity has actually been going for 40 years, hence the old fashioned language. We used to talk about medical accidents. We now talk about patient safety incidents. But at the, at the core of what our charity does is give advice and support to people who've been affected by things going wrong in healthcare, by lapses in patient safety. And we've been doing that for 40 years. 
uh, every single working day having conversations with people like Sue uh, from a whole variety of backgrounds, different kinds of healthcare, different types of incidents, uh, but all of them share certain elements. And often uh, our experience tells us it's the way that people are dealt with after harm uh, that can be almost as important as the incident that led to them coming into this world of patient safety and uh, patient safety incidents. And that's what led our charity to campaign in the UK for the duty of candour, a statutory duty of candour, uh, which was one of the earliest adopters, I believe, in England of such a law. Thank you, Peter. And Michael, could you introduce yourself in the context of this uh, patient safety and duty of candour? I've been a health lawyer for decades without giving away my age um, and I've been involved in a range of uh, government and non-government organisations in the healthcare sector. Uh, and have been involved in a lot of the reforms involving open disclosure, which was a big issue from about 20 years ago uh, for hospitals and for uh, practitioners, uh, and more recently as chair of the expert working group uh, dealing with statutory duty of candour, following on from the developments in the UK. Great. Thank you all. So let's get started um, with you, Sue. Uh, from your perspective, what impact do you think the culture of healthcare has on patient safety from your experiences? It all depends on how we define culture of safety. There's a lot of different definitions. And I would say that when there is a strong culture of safety um, from leadership to staff and to including patients and families in that culture, then I think it has a direct tie to uh, better outcomes. And um, so I, I think it goes without saying that when there's a strong culture of safety, that we have better outcomes. And, you know, from the two experiences that I had, um, there was not a culture of safety and there was a culture of deny and defend, of, of um, not giving access to medical records, the patients to, um, you know, never really sharing the true risk of certain issues in healthcare. You know, if there's a strong culture of safety to find in the appropriate way, I think it has ties directly to if patients are safe, if healthcare workers are treated with dignity, and and they make a difference. They they learn from it and integrate that into um, into their improvements. So, Peter, I'm I'm curious, how would you start to define culture, particularly a good, healthy, safe culture in healthcare? Well, as you'd expect, uh, there's a lot of commonality between what Susan said and what I'll say. The two things that we see most commonly when things go very, very badly wrong in some of the bigger health scandals in the UK, um, where organisations have really, really failed on patient safety. In those organisations, they've had a culture that prepared to sweep things under the carpet or keep things secret, not to be open and honest with patients, uh, the public or even their own staff. And the other thing is a culture that is unfair to the organization's own staff, a blaming culture, an inappropriate blaming culture, hanging people out to dry for incidents that are really the result of system failure. I think if you put those two things together, it really underlines that what we're talking about here is not things for patients and things for staff. The same sort of principles, the same sort of ethics should apply to both. One thing about when people talk about just culture, which is now a sort of international term um, that we're all using, sometimes it's just an open culture or just and fair, just and restorative. Um, 
too often it's talked about just in relation to staff, almost like a human relations policy that you're fair to your staff. That's only one part of it. In healthcare, it's got to include patients and families together with staff to be an organizational culture. I agree with everything that Peter said, and it's been interesting to watch the evolution of the culture of safety. And it has been, like Peter said, traditionally, it has been very clinician-centric, very organization-centric. And so in talking about, a tr- if you really step back and say, what is a true culture of safety? It engages you know, the perspectives of the patients and families that we are engaged in reporting you know, bad outcomes, that the, that the healthcare system has a system or mechanisms to capture our stories, to capture our experience, and that we're also treated with dignity. And that the psychological, emotional support, you know, it has been focusing on the care of the caregiver or what they call the second victim. You know, here in the United States, we're really challenging that, you know, because, you know, the, the harm, the, and we call it the second harm, especially when things aren't disclosed, um, you know, it impacts not just the patient and the, and the wife or the husband, but the children and the extended family. And there has been no psychological support you know, for that population. I think we have a chance to expand the definition of a culture of safety, where it's not just within the bricks and mortar of a clinic or institution, that we're thinking holistically about the activities that everybody can take in a hospital to to keep safe. And also when things don't go well, that we're all engaged in talking about the root cause analysis, changes that will be made, that we do this in partnership. I think that's a true, you know, culture of safety that's open, not only in disclosure, but everything is open in terms of real true risks to some of the interventions that we have access to our medical records real time. And this is, we need to expand this definition to show that it's far more comprehensive than I think we've talked about in the past. Well, I think that for a culture of safety, it's it's keeping the patients safe. So they should be by definition included. Absolutely. And there's evidence to show that the more we're engaged, the better outcomes we have. So a culture of safety must engage us at all levels, including redesigning some of the healthcare systems. Mm. Peter, do you have examples or patterns that you've seen about the flow down to, to patient safety and how patients are affected by the culture in a healthcare setting? Well, yes. I mean, sadly, because of the work my charity does, we're often p- helping people pick up the pieces after things going wrong. Uh, we don't get as regularly the experience of things going well, which, of course, they do most of the time. Um, But as I said, there are very, very common things that you see when things go wrong. And it's where there's the lack of leadership, the lack of the kind of culture, openness and engagement that Sue's been talking about. So, you know, we just know that from years and years of experience in every major investigation or review that there's been. Um, So the flip side of that is that when there is openness and honesty, even when things have gone wrong, when there's tragedy involved, it can be a massively healing process, both for the health professionals involved, as well as the patient's family. Um, And we see this time and time again. I mean, some of the, you know, an orthopedic surgeon friend of mine, has told me that the people he gets Christmas cards from still are the patients that he's had the most difficult conversations with, uh, less so than the people who've gone off very happy uh, with a, a new hip or a new knee. Um, it's because you have that, that depth of understanding, of relationship, of interaction, uh, because the emotions and the feelings are so high. Um, 
it's the the opposite of what Sue described, which we're very aware of as well, second harm. And for anyone who's not familiar with the term, we're talking about there the harm that's caused, not by the patient safety incident itself, but actual grievous real harm that's caused by the way that people have been dealt with after that harm, when there hasn't been openness and honesty, when there's not been engagement. And so the, they, those are the main themes I think I'd, I'd pull out. I've been a patient activist for 26 years, had the honor of, of leading a program at WHO uh, for seven years. Um, patients all who had experienced bad outcomes I don't remember one that had any full disclosure. So we're all in the, in the same club. And then I worked for the U.S. government for another seven years and met with hundreds of patients. And this topic of disclosure and the second harm, you know, we all recognize that the original patient safety or medical error, the incident, is, as Peter calls it, I think we all have come to the agreement that it was unintentional. And, and many of us are able to forgive the providers um, for that. We understand that no one intended, in most cases, to, to harm anybody. The decision not to disclose harm and, and then let us live in mystery, sometimes for months or years, trying to figure out what the heck happened, is intentional. And it is sometimes very calculated. And um, that is digs even deeper because that clinician or hospital had a choice and they chose not to tell us the truth. And we all agree that this is really a very frightening reality that a system and providers that we trust implicitly choose that path. And so I just wanted to add, you know, you know, what does it really do to us who have been, you know, harmed by the healthcare system, number one, and then a second time? It doesn't go away. The power isn't with the patient because they don't know what's going on. Oh, no. Yeah. How do you tell patients that they can expect openness or demand openness from their health practitioners, even though they might not be aware that it's necessary in the moment? Well, here in the United States, we I don't think I could honestly say to a patient that they can expect honesty. Um, we don't have anything statutory in the United States. Um, actually, our group, Patients for Patient Safety U.S., is, um, is uh, going forward in demanding this type of um, legal approach to, we think it should absolutely be our right. We think it should be a human right to know when things go wrong. Um, we believe it should be the standard of care. And so right now I can't honestly say to a patient they can expect it, but um, if patients anticipate that an error happened, we encourage them to go back to the, to the healthcare system or to the provider if it's possible and say, I need a discussion about what happened to my family member, and let's 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 talk as partners here. It's not always successful. Um, you know, it's still very ingrained the deny and defend. Uh, there's some very good institutions that are practicing something similar to the duty of candor. It's not the majority, though. Michael, could you explain what the concept of duty of candor is and what work that you're doing in response to preventing things like this happening? I suppose this has been a journey of about 20 years. So about 20 years ago, Australia did a major study of its hospitals, following on a similar study done in America, where uh, in America, about 12% of patients in the health system were injured by the health system. So patients actually ended up worse than when they went in, which I think was a big shock. Um, 
we didn't think we were as bad as America. Sorry, Sue. Um, but in fact, we were. We came in at about uh, 15% of patients being injured um, within the system. So, so we knew that had to stop. Um, we knew that we needed to have a more open culture. And, and the open disclosure culture is about disclosure to patients. But it's also having a more open discussion within the hospital itself about when things go wrong because it was clearly identified that the fear of litigation, the fear of being sued, so the hospital being sued or the doctor being sued or the nurse being sued, was a barrier to sharing information within the hospital, let alone sharing information with the patient. So a, a safer culture was one where everyone could discuss the issues openly, work out what went wrong, and then fix the problem without fear of litigation. So that was the barrier. So in those days, we, we made it um, legal to apologise and provide information to patients without it being an admission of guilt. So an explanation of what went wrong, usually system errors, was not to be an admission of guilt to encourage this broader discussion. Insurers, insurers of hospitals and insurers of doctors and other health professionals recognised that that produced better outcomes. Patients were less likely to sue where they had received an explanation, where they had received an apology and someone had acknowledged the harm that had been done to them, they were the ones less likely to sue. It's the ones who discover things were hidden, that the, that the hospital didn't care or the doctor didn't deliver. That's when patients will go to the lawyers and, and start suing. So we wanted to change that broad approach um, and, and to create a much safer environment within hospitals. So that's been a process over several years. And then with the UK legislating to make it a requirement for hospitals and doctors and nurses to disclose errors, that's the statutory duty of CANDA, a positive legal obligation at law um, uh, has been explored in Victoria. And uh, our recommendations have produced legislation, uh, which is currently before our state government in Victoria, before the parliament, to create a process by which uh, harm will be examined properly uh, with all of the right practitioners in the room, with the hospital, um, to find out what went wrong, to prepare a review or report and provide that information to the patient. So it must be provided to the patient. And I think if people know that that is actually now a legal obligation and it must be done, it sort of frees people up to just get on and, and do it and be normal humans. Now, that also requires, of course, um, as Peter mentioned, that we remove the shame and blame culture as well. So, so now that it's got to happen and people know that this is a good thing for patients and it's a good thing for the hospital, um, I think it, it, it will produce a different culture. But, you know, it, it's terrible that we have to legislate for these sorts of things. But And in many cases, without the legislation, it's been happening across Australian hospitals, um, you know, in, in, in different ways uh, across the country. But... This, in, in, in one sense, sort of makes it clear that um, this is the right thing to do and there are protections built in with the statutory duty of candour. So the patient gets the information, the patient gets it all, but there's a protection for uh, the individuals involved as well built into it. So that it's just sort of addressing that sort of fear of litigation. Um, and it's not just for a legal change, it is that um, cultural change, I think, as well, um, I think we would all say we know that most health practitioners and professionals and most hospitals want to do the right thing. It's, it's not that they actively go out to do the wrong thing, um, but 
this will trigger, I think, the permission um, to, to be more open and more candid uh, with patients when things go wrong. And because there's a statutory protection attached to it as well, there's sort of an incentive built in as well, particularly for institutions. Um, our statutory duty of candour will only apply to institutions. It won't apply to professionals. So it won't apply to doctors and nurses as in the UK. Um, but, um, you know, their insurers, so nurses and doctors' own insurers say this is the right approach, that it's so much easier to go to a patient after something has gone wrong and say, look, um, we didn't get the perfect result that we were hoping for. We had these issues that we encountered. Um, this didn't go as we expected. Uh, this mistake was made. Um, now, here's, here's how we're going to fix the problem. This is what we're going to do now to deal with that and make sure that you get a better outcome. And we're really sorry that it's occurred to you in this case. We didn't get the result that we really wanted. That's a much easier discussion to have with a patient. Peter, could you talk about, is, is there an increased culture of openness? Uh, yeah, I think the vast majority of people in England where the statutory duty account has been in place now for a few years, since 2014, in fact, um, things are better. Um, the problem is by no means fixed. Uh, I'd be um, completely naive to, to think that, uh, and I know for a fact because of the, the clients, uh, the people who come to us for help and support, they tell us uh, it's not 100% fixed. People do sometimes still not get the truth. Um, there are cover-ups at the extreme end and economies with the truth uh, on the other end. But things are a lot better now, uh, as Michael was suggesting. Um, it's become more the norm. Um, people don't even consider not telling the patient or family in most instances. Whereas a few years ago, before the statutory duty, uh, those conversations wouldn't have been had. And there was this strange situation um, that I'm sure in Victoria people will be talking about, you know, that uh, when, when the, the, the work is complete on the statutory duty, people are saying, well, why on earth didn't we have this for all those years? Because effectively what England had was for years, people had frowned on a lack of openness. They'd frowned on cover-ups. Everyone knew they happened. Um, there was no secret about that. But when we used to speak to ministers and saying, look, we've got to do something about that, no, they, they weren't having it. So the system actually frowned upon the problem, but it tolerated it. And I think this is the difference with the duty of candour becoming statutory, that, um, of course, you won't change culture or behaviour simply by bringing in legislation, bringing in laws, laws and regulations. But by golly, it doesn't half help. Um, I don't think anyone would be arguing, would they, for not having anti-race discrimination legislation. That's something that's very behavioural, it's cultural. So what it is, is sending us a message from society that we won't tolerate this kind of behaviour. And if in any sector we really, really can't afford to tolerate it, it's healthcare. Because not only is it an injustice to the patient, the family, uh, it's something that's going to damage the health professional who will have a monkey on the back for the rest of their career. And moreover, it means that lessons aren't learned and patient safety isn't improved. So, I mean, I guess in some ways our laws are a reflection of our perspectives in society. So legislating for openness shows that it's a priority and, and important for us. So how does this 
sound to you and 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 what's kind of the reaction um what what do you think the reaction more broadly would be from the patients and families who you work with and speak for well that's exactly what we want i mean it's you know we we aren't even close to anything like legislation in the united states yet um but that is exactly what we feel every patient and quite frankly every you know caregiver should be under this umbrella of the duty of candor um this you know when when harm happens and it's not disclosed it's like what i analogy is like it's a hit and run you know you're harmed and then people don't even look back they don't look i mean they pretend like it didn't happen um and it you know that has perpetuated in the united states and so i think it's going to be up to the patient community and the caregiver community to join together and to initiate you know steps to legislate the duty of candor you know we have you know our healthcare system and our government is very different than the others that we're talking you know here and so we have a very strong um lobby against things like this that we're trying to propose so so when you speak to patients and families after there's been an error um is that a priority for them what why didn't why didn't the doctor or nurse tell me what had happened or why weren't they more open with me oh yes that's the, the first thing that comes out of their mouth yeah oh no that is an absolute patient priority yep and not only in our countries developed countries been in, in countries in development you know the sentiment is the same we expect our we expect our healthcare professionals to be honest and we frankly don't know of any other profession where honesty is optional mm yeah and um so on that peter do you have any guiding principles for health practitioners yes i think the first thing i'd like to say is um the duty of candor or its equivalent open disclosure if you like openness and honesty is always the right thing to do for both sets of people uh, this isn't just something that's about patients rights it's as michael said empowering health professionals to do what comes naturally to them their 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 moral compass their ethical compass their professional code is about taking care of their patients and being honest to them and this makes it easier in an organizational context contrary to what some people argued in the UK about not wanting a duty of candor because it would lead to more litigation uh, it actually takes away a lot of that incentive to both make very serious complaints and to litigate it's good for health professionals it's good for institutions because it improves patient safety and of course it's good for patients and families because it prevents that second harm that Sue and I have been talking about now we do have something called candor here in the united states it's not a law it's not legislated it's being taught at hospitals um which is admirable and um hospitals are picking it up and they're beginning to use to use the kind of that the candor approach um what i really like about it is um that they go through the steps that michael and peter have talked about that they give you know full description of what happened and then they actually and they do try to to provide financial compensation when necessary they try to understand the needs of the caregivers and the families and what i really like about it is they work with the families to try to identify policies and solutions to implement in that hospital or practice um so oftentimes the patients are very engaged in maybe writing a new policy and that's actually very healing you know although 
I personally did, didn't get disclosure with my son or my husband. Um, after time, I was able to come back with the hospital where my, my son was harmed. And we did implement a brand new policy at their hospital um, that you know all children had to be um, tested for their jaundice. So these types of programs are beginning to be more implemented here in the United States, but we still have we're still learning, and I think I think Australia and, and England, you're you're teaching us. Do you have any examples of success where where you've seen um, health practitioners be open with their patients, and from that patient perspective, what that's been like for them? Yeah, I, I do know patients who have had some good experiences. Um, one in particular on the east coast who went into surgery for um, a minor back surgery. They had. Um, a, uh, a device actually malfunctioned and it um, paralyzed the patient. And um, before the patient was even, um, you know, out of recovery and conscious, the hospital formed a team and they all, you know, came together, did an immediate full disclosure. And, um, and they continue to work with the patient to this day. And the hospital and the, and the patients often speak together now about, about that. And there was another example in Chicago where a woman also went in for a for uh, some type of surgery, um, her alarms had been turned off and, and her um, O2 sats dropped dramatically and there's no alarms to alert them. And she suffered massive brain damage and the family decided that, um, you know, it, it, she, she just couldn't live. And that hospital also um, approached the family immediately. And um, that family and, um, and that hospital continued to make big presentations on how this can work positively, where it's a win-win for the family and the hospital. Plus, they've gone on to teach other hospitals the importance of this kind of relationship and this kind of practice of candor. Michael. It's interesting um, with both open disclosure over the years and, and now the duty of candor. I mean, they've arisen through crises in the health system. So 20 years ago, we had a medico-legal crisis. Um, you know, all the lawyers were out suing and Hospitals were being sued, doctors were being sued, and they all thought that was terrible. But what they all recognised is being more open and being able to talk about it and to provide the information to patients actually led to less litigation and better outcomes for everyone. Um, and even with the statutory duty of candour, it's arisen out of a major issue with a, a, a smaller hospital in Victoria where a number of babies were dying and as it turns out, unnecessarily, because the hospital really just wasn't equipped to deal with, with that volume and, and, and the um, more serious cases that they were adopting. Uh, and, and the inquiry uh, showed that there was a significant cover-up. Now, when there's a significant cover-up, that's when the lawyers come jumping in for class actions and um, all the rest of it, because it's the only thing available to the patients. And, and it's after the event, and it's too late, and it's hardly really compensation. But... Um, it, you know, we get more litigation if there is cover-up and uh, no explanations. We get less litigation when we can be open and talk about issues and, and talk it through with patients and compensate because it's appropriate to compensate, um, but in a much more measured way, in a less costly way than, than massive legal cases. Doctors' own insurers want this sort of change really as an encouragement to a better culture and a better practice because at the end of the day, um, it's, it's a cheaper outcome from a litigation point of view, um, but it's you know it's also clearly a very good outcome for for patients and for all of us um, that we get an ex you know if something's gone wrong we all get an explanation of course. So, 
I do have uh, a little sense of worry that the duty of candor as a mechanism to avoid litigation. Um, I think it should be a mechanism to do what's right and a mechanism to learn and implement change. Um, something that worries me is that there has been no research, to my knowledge, at least in the United States, to understand the satisfaction and the impact to the patients on a long term. We don't know if, you know, five years after the candor, the duty of candor was implemented, we don't know if they regret, you know, uh, settling or whatever, you know, closing the case or whatever it is. We don't know if their needs are met long term. Um, and so I really think we need to have some research to, um, to understand the patient perspective long-term, to understand if the candor of duty is really beneficial to the patient, is it really beneficial to the hospital, um, is it one-sided? Um, we don't know that information yet. And so I think, you know, long-term, we need some researchers to, to start following this. And, and that's a good kind of segue into my final question, which was going to be a look to the future about how we can grow and learn from having an increased culture of openness and the expectation of openness and requirement. Peter, I might start with you. Well, I think we're looking at uh, a situation in healthcare, hopefully all around the world, where we could say with our hands on our hearts that healthcare staff aren't going to be inappropriately blamed hung out to dry, bullied when things go wrong, uh, which are more system orientated than individual, um, where they feel free to, to speak up uh, and to do the right thing, i.e. be open and honest with their patients. One where patients and families are not caused second harm by being badly treated and dishonestly treated when things have gone wrong. And that mix together to me is the just and fair culture. And if we get the just and fair culture and the leadership right, we're gonna have safer healthcare for all. Thank you. And Michael. Look, the statutory duty of candor is a start, not an end. Um, and there needs to be a lot more that occurs as a result of it. Um, staff need to be trained, administrators need to be trained um, to uh, reflect the attitude of what a, a statutory duty of candour, candour meaning openness, honesty, um, is all about. Um, and we need to be training our people in how to communicate that to patients as well. Um, on the one hand, we don't want them just blurting out to terribly sorry we've injured your loved one. That's not exactly going to be great for the patient or the family either. So it's, it's, a, it's about the way it's conveyed, the way the information is conveyed, and it's got to be followed with what next. Um, I think the better outcome for patients and families is it's not just giving them an explanation of what went wrong, it's then the what next. So, so that's happened. So what, what, do we, what do we do next? How do we, can we fix it? Um, if we can't, um, if we've lost a loved one in the case of the hospital with, with uh, babies, you can't, you can't bring them back. So, so what next? And sometimes it's compensation and that's the only thing available. But sometimes it's, well, you know, we, we can do more, you know, with, with further procedures and, and different services um, or, or care, better, better care, ongoing care for a patient that has been injured. So um, it's, not, it's not just the, the duty, it's not just the discussion, it's the what next is important as well. Thank you. And, and so what, how can we keep learning into the future? I, I agree with both Peter and, and Michael, um, but, you know, I'm looking at it from the patient perspective. 
Um, I think we need to get more patients engaged in this dialogue in in developing the duty of candor and all the various components of it. Like Michael said, capacity building, you know, having that conversation. I want to include that it's not just about you know clinicians who are afraid to speak up in that culture, but what about the patients who have been harmed? You know, we've cast them aside for decades and their emotional needs, their family needs. You know, I have a daughter now who's 24 who had the, you know, the impact on my, my son and my husband, her emotional well-being has been dramatically altered because of that. And we didn't know it for a long time because no one has studied, you know, the little ones who are involved in dealing with it. So I think the duty of candor is like Michael said. It's a good start, but I think we need to make it more patient-centered. Um, I think right now it's clinician-centered and organization-centered. Good start, but we need to we need to uh, complete that by bringing in the patient perspective in a very meaningful way. And then, like I said earlier, we need to study the long-term impact and satisfaction of the duty of candor on the families, because um, a lot of times we simply don't know when harms occurred. We don't know what that impacts can be on the rest of the family and their emotional needs. We don't know. For example, my son lived. He didn't die, but he's got all kinds of, you know, he's got he's speech impaired, hearing impaired, vision impaired. Um, the, his needs we never knew. You don't know the first few weeks in life after, you know, harm like that. So I really think we, again, to complete this package, we need a very strong patient perspective in shaping this and taking this forward. Mm. Thank you, Sue. And thank you to all of our guests for a really stimulating conversation about openness and duty of candor, what that means for health practitioners, but more importantly, what it means for patients and their families and how we can move towards patient-centred change. Well, thank you very much for having me and allowing me to share our experience in the UK. Best of luck to you in Australia and indeed in the US around the world in the pursuit of an open and fair culture. It's been a pleasure to, you know, be on this platform all together and learn from each other so we can make a difference. Hopefully the statutory duty of candor and open disclosure uh, becomes a more permanent fixture in a, our uh, health system in Australia. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Taking Care. Please do subscribe and rate us. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you need something else to listen to in the meantime, before we release our next episode, we have a growing back catalogue. Until next time, take care.